because that's what Jesus said, okay, all the Old Testament's about him, that must also inform us of how we understand our study in 1 Samuel. It has to understand how we study Genesis, how we understand Ecclesiastes, etc. And so it informs that. This is vital. This is really vital for us to get, all right? This is just introduction, and I want, I want to, for you to see some things here um, because I want you to see what I'm not going to do, and I want you to see what we're going to strive to do. It's vital to understand that because Jesus said what he said in the New Testament about the Old Testament, that also means we have to interpret the Old Testament a certain way. Here's what I mean. There's a literary framework, specifically in 1 Samuel, and it's, it's a, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel um, are, and, and a bunch of the Old Testament, it's, it's history presented in a storybook format. It's called narrative. And so we get to, in a way, in a sense, we crack open a novel, and it reads like a novel often. It's a um, nonfiction novel. And so that's what we're up against, or that's what, what it is here. And so we're going to, like beginning today, um, today we're going to, that's why I've entitled today's uh, message is Hannah's Pain. Um, we're going to look at people all the time. Matter of fact, you know, we're going to look at Hannah, and then we're going to look at Eli, and Eli had two pretty bad dude sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We're going to look at them. We're going to look at Samuel. We're going to look at Saul. We're going to look at David. There's a lot of people that we're going to address. And so the temptation when a story that features people, or when you talk about the gospel in a story format, the temptation for us then is to make the study a do-better study. This is what I mean. It would be tempting for us to read through, like today, Hannah, and the takeaway is only be like Hannah. Now, Hannah is going to encourage us today in her pain. Hannah handles her pain well. We all experience pain. Hannah's a good example for us. But if the only thing we get out of today's study is be more like Hannah, then we failed. If the only thing we get out of looking at Saul is don't be like Saul, which is true. Actually, Saul started out pretty good, but then he ends, doesn't end well. And there's no trophies. We don't give trophies out for how we start, right? Then if that's all that we see, don't be like Saul, then we failed. Because what happens is, is when we make are reading like a checklist or a do better list or a don't be like that kind of list, then all we, all, it just becomes some sort of, it's called, there's a term that's used and basically it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. We, we don't want to just have this stuff that we read be moralistic therapy for us, couched in, in theological terms. Where we read about Hannah and we're like, Hey, be like Hannah. She had pain. She went to God. Bless God. Kumbaya. Let's eat some s'mores and we're good. That's not how, that's never the intent of the text. Jesus said in the New Testament that all the Old Testament was about him. So we've got to see the hope. We've got to see the truth through storybook format and how it points to Jesus. Not to some sort of moralistic checklist. Because if that's all we make this study about, then guess what? We're going to go away here at week after week, and we're going to go 
out of these doors, and we might be all pumped up and all encouraged, and everything's kumbaya and good, but the minute conflict comes, it's going to pop our balloon, and guess what? We're deflated, and we soon realize that I can't be like Hannah. You know, Hannah wasn't always Hannah that we read in this. I'm sure Hannah was a sinner just like us. David was, David was not a good dude all the time. So the moral of the story cannot be just be like Hannah or be like David because they weren't, Samuel, they weren't always good people. And then we're going to come to realize as we do in our daily walk, that balloon is going to get popped and we're going to be defeated and we're going to be deflated and it's going to be like, I can't do it. And then we're going to do what? We're going to throw our hands up and just say, ah, it's not worth it. You ever been there and done that? Of course you have. Life is difficult. Life is hard. And so we cannot base our Christian living, we cannot base what we read as, on, on like some sort of checking a good box or avoiding to check the bad box. That's a life that's not, that's a life, what is essentially, what are we doing? We're trying to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, aren't we? That's not a life that's connected to the gospel. That's not a life that's finding its vigor and its, its motivation and its life in the person and the work of Jesus. You know, we wonder why sometimes there's a lot of folks in my generation and the 40-year-olds and younger, we wonder why a lot of them, there's a whole group of people called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. The un, they're unchurched. They, they just have, for various different reasons, but one of those reasons is that growing up, a lot of people my age, what was held up to us as godly was how you looked and how you talked. It was outward ex- expressions. It was never, it was... It was never connected to the inward heart. And so teenagers, a lot of teenagers that I grew up or, or grew up with, teenagers that were even in my youth group um, back in the early 2000s for eight years when I was a youth pastor, a lot of those kids, because we emphasized the moralism, because we emphasized, they, they realized, Look, I just can never measure up. And no wonder they don't want anything to do with God today. We can't do that. And so we don't want to read into the text something that's not there. You know, we don't want to, oh, I think Jesus is in the falling of the sprinkling of the water because the blood sprinkled one day. So it's got to be, it's got to be, uh, we don't want to force things. But we want to see it does speak to Jesus some way, shape, or form because Jesus said so. So that, all right, is why I say it's the gospel according to 1 Samuel and that also must shape how we understand this narrative, this story that we're going to start in today. By the way, I hope that you, in your own personal reading and Bible study, outside of this study that we're doing in 1 Samuel, that you don't read the scriptures and, you're just, and you make it a, a checkbox sort of thing. Oh, Bible says, let your speech be seasoned with grace. Well, I was really nice to the lady today at the restaurant when she wasn't kind to me because I asked her three times to bring out the salt and she didn't. How dare she? She's a horrible person. And I could have lit into her because this is a service industry and so I'm not going to give her a tip even so blah, blah, blah on her, you know. But I didn't. I was a good little Christian today. So I checked the box and now everything is good. We can't do that even in our own Bible, personal Bible study. Does everybody understand? We've got to walk. We've got to see life in and through and by energized in the gospel. The gospel is not just the what, but it's the how and the why, too, of life. All right? 
So we're going to see how this book connects with, intersects with the gospel. It gives hope based on Jesus, right? It's not a do-better study that we're, we're starting today. With that in mind, I would like for you to turn back to that passage. If you have one of those, cover, those copies back there, just open up to the very front of it. You'll see there. And I want to read together, starting just verses 1 and verse 2 of this text together as we jump right into the story. Read with me verse 1 and 2. It says, There was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim in the, in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and the Ephrathite. Aren't you glad your name is not Elihu, Tohu, or Zuf? Zuf? Man. Although, I don't know. Tohu, Tohu Mason. How does that sound? Not as good as Ronan or Jude, you're right. Weird names. And I can say they're weird names because my last name is Vanderwarker, so I can, I can speak. <laughs> and Ephrathite, number two, verse two, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now skip down to verse number nine. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. All right, stop there and look up here. We're introduced here, really, to the four main characters that I want to look at today, the beginning of this, this story. Now, as we read through this, I'm going to emphasize Panina, and I'm going to emphasize uh, Elkanah, Panina, and Eli. I'm not going to emphasize Hannah as much because, really, the whole story is about her. But really, at the very beginning, you see the four main players, the four main people in this story. So I want to give you the outline today, and you can, uh, that's, if you want to follow that outline or you just want to take notes there to your right, you're welcome to do that. That's the intent of these books that have blank pages. But first of all, I want to see the people in Hannah's life, all right? First, there's Elkanah. Elkanah. Uh, is her husband, and these opening verses give us the, really a short genealogy of who Elkanah is. There are really, as you look through that, there are about five distinctions here that identify the area where Elkanah is from, but also his lineage, his family history that he has. Now, if we were to do a little bit of research on his family history, we really wouldn't find much at all about Elkanah. This is what we find or what we know about Elkanah. Now, he does appear to have better than average economic status. How do we know that? Because he has two wives, and one of his wives, so basically he has two families that he has to care for, and one of his wives, if we look at extra biblical, the text doesn't say how many children that Penina has, but extra biblical resources say, if we trust them, that there were, uh, that she had 10 children, which is believable when we, as we read through this, where it said, when Elkanah says, am I not better to you than 10 sons? So here we have Elkanah, who's got quite a few mouths to feed. He's got two wives, and he can support it. Knowing all of that, really what the takeaway about Elkanah is, is this. Elkanah really is just an ordinary dude. He's not the king of anything. He's not like the, the leader of some sort of city. He's, not, he's just an ordinary, regular dude like us. He doesn't have the familiarity of one of the patriarchs. You know, there's not a whole, we don't, when we talk about the patriarchs, we don't say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Elkanah. 
right? He's just really an ordinary guy, which means Hannah's pretty ordinary too. Verse 2 then mentions two other people in this, uh, the next two people in the story, Hanina and Pen- uh, I mean Hannah and Penina. And uh, as I said, we'll skip through, we're going to learn a lot about Hanina. But so who was this Penina? Who was she? Well, we can securely and safely assume that Penina was the second wife of Elkanah. Now, why can we assume that? Because in the culture of the day, the culture of the day was very, um, was based on the husbands and their businesses. So as the husband went, so went the family. And then the husband, um, he would desire or would have a, would want a son because then the business would be passed down to the son and then the son can run the business for the family. The husband would pass off the scene, let's say, and even if, if the husband's wife, the son's mother, was still alive, she didn't run the business. The oldest son would do that. If he was dead, then the second, so on and so forth. So it was really a, a, a system, a culture that was based on um, the dominance and the leadership of men. Now, I'm not saying that that's all good. I'm just saying that's the culture of the day. Now, the reason why we can think then that Panina was the second wife is because if Hannah had provided children to Elkanah, he would have had no need to have a second wife. Because Elkanah probably is a pretty, he's got some spiritual bones in his body. And we'll look at that here in just a little bit. So really, for a family to continue to be viable and prosper, a family would have to have a son to carry on the family business. And so Hannah obviously didn't give him that son at this point, as we know the story, but Panina did. Panina is able to bear children with both, as verse 4 says, multiple boys and multiple girls. So we have Panina. Verse 3 goes on, as David read, and it mentions two uh, it mentions Eli, Hophni, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We're going to talk about them later. But Eli is mentioned here in verse 3. In verse 9, and that's why I read verse 9, it's identifi- he's identified as Eli the who? You remember, do you remember? He's the who? The priest, right? All right, now Eli the priest is not just, uh, there were many priests, okay? There were a lot of, we would call them, in, in a way, we would call them pastors, right? There were a lot of pastors of the day. But Eli has a unique position, a unique responsibility. He is the high priest. He was the one that, as the verse says, that that sat on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple. He was the overseer. He was the guide. He was uh, the one that was overseeing the worship and guiding the worship uh, and the happenings of the tabernacle. Not only that, one of the key responsibilities as the high priest was Um, he had the significant ministry of once a year he had on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the Holy of Holies, which was the place of the representation of the place where God's presence was, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so he would go in there on one time, uh, once a year, and he would, on behalf of himself, he would, uh, there would be blood that was shed and it would be sprinkled in there. And that makes sense for us. Remember our study in Leviticus. Um, We committed, we committed uh, spiritual, um, uh, and physical uh, crimes against God. And so, therefore, there is a death penalty. We all are going to die physically someday, but there also is the spiritual death penalty. And so life is in the blood, as Leviticus talks about. And so because we rebelled as believers against God, then it requires our life, both physically and spiritually. And so blood was, is symbolic of life, and so it makes sense in this that he would go in there and sprinkle blood and on behalf of 
himself. He would do it for himself and then on behalf of the nation to make atonement for the sins of the people. This was a really key thing for Eli and his ministry. He was the intermediator or the mediator or the uh, intercessor, whatever word you like, between God and the really people in God. So he had a significant ministry. He was significant in the spiritual life of the people, which we will get to in the next, in the following weeks. So these three people, Elkanah, her husband, Panina, the co-wife, and Eli were very key people in the life of Hannah. They play important roles, really, and that's why we get to number two, because there's a, there's some, there's a major problem that's going on in Hannah's life. And that problem is specifically stated there in verse, at the end of verse two where it says, but Hannah had no children. You know what kind of problem this was? This was a very personal problem. God had given Hannah the motherly desire to, build ch- to bear children. Now, not all women have this. We know from our study in 1 Corinthians that sometimes God gives uh, both men and women the gift of singleness. And so um, they don't bear naturally bear have a desire to naturally bear children. Perhaps they um, are able to adopt and, and be a single parent uh, like that. That's uh, quite possible. But in this story, Hannah had that internal drive and desire that God had given her to bear children, and she couldn't have them. Could you imagine the turmoil that was going on in her life? I honestly don't understand it, to be quite honest with you. Um, give you a little bit of a testimony, personal testimony here. My wife and I were married in 1999, and um, she had started after uh, a couple years of our marriage, um, a year or two after our marriage, had started the desire to want to have children. Of course, uh, I, you know, I didn't catch up to that, to, to be quite honest with you. I didn't really catch up to that as quickly as she did. I was enjoying just the two of us. I was enjoying, she was a, she was a nurse at the hospital system, and she was making like double the money that I was making, and I was able to play golf a whole lot. <laughs> and so I, I didn't have to stay at home with a little kid, and we were able to do, we were able to do quite a bit of things. And so um, it, was just, it was great. I remember the very first uh, Christmas we were there, Christmas Day, of course we're in Virginia, right? Christmas Day, she had to work because she was a low man on the totem pole, and I was on a golf course on Christmas Day. It was awesome. Kids enter the, you know, the situation, everything, everything changes. And so I am saying that to say, just, I didn't relate really well. She would come home, she would be times when Deanna would just, and she's actually, uh, she was here just a little bit ago to teach, but she's home now with, with our boys, the, our three boys are home, not feeling the greatest, so she went home to be mom. <laughs> and so, and she knows that we've shared this story, both of us publicly before, so I'm not think, saying anything that she is not aware of. She would just, at times, it, it would just really crush her heart. And she would cry. And me being the typical man, so supportive as I was, I said something really stupid like, am I not more than 10 sons to you? As Elkanah said. And so uh, I didn't understand. It was a problem, though, for her. It was a very, very personal problem. Hannah wanted the child, and she wasn't able to have any. You ever been in, there in life where you have these problems where it's just really that difficult? But it wasn't just a personal problem that she had. It was a provoked problem. 
In verse number six, we read again, and her rival, that is Panina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat just to compound that personal problem that she had. That's something that she felt dearly. It was a provoked problem. Hannah has a co-wife that was a constant thorn in her flesh. And we, don't know, and, and we know it's not just Hannah being overly emotional because it says right there in verse 6, it identifies Penina's whole motive. It identifies her as the rival, and she's intentionally trying to provoke and irritate Hannah. And when the text says grievously here, that word grievously, it's trying to communicate a very sharp or powerful aggravation with intent to hurt Hannah deeply. Salt was poured on the wound all the time. Ever felt that before? I know for us, as I continue that illustration, it was, we were, I'm the oldest of my brothers and sisters, and it doesn't always happen this way, but um, typically the oldest has the first grandchild, and then, you know, yada, yada, down the line, and that sort of thing, and it doesn't have to happen that way, but we really, we wanted children, and, and then both of our siblings both got pregnant. My sister got pregnant, um, her sister got pregnant, and we were like, God, what's wrong with us? And, and it was not, it's not the same in that my sister was like, ha, 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 I got pregnant, you know, we're pregnant, you're not. Um, it wasn't like that, but it was a constant reminder to both of us. It was persistent. It was provoked, not by them, but, within, but it was constant reminder. It was a really difficult situation for us. At that point, after five years, it became a problem for me, too. It just took me a lot longer. But it was provoked. We, every time, hey, how are you doing? And we would, we would want to be happy for them. It was our first nieces and nephews and stuff. And we wanted to be happy for them. And, and how are things going? And how's that? And then we'd hang up the phone and, you know, there would be more tears. It was difficult. It was a lot of pain. You also here notice how the problem became a physical one for Hannah, too. So not only was it a personal one and a provoked one, but it was a physical one, too. This affected her so much that she couldn't even eat. I could only imagine the hurt that she was going through. Again, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't understand everything that my wife was going through. The problem was not only physical, not only did it turn physical, where she wept bitterly and all that, it also felt permanent to Hannah. It wasn't permanent, but it felt that way. The family would travel to Shiloh to worship and to sacrifice. And we don't know how long, honestly, we don't know how long Hannah was barren. There's, like the extra biblical resources I mentioned uh, about Panina having 10 kids, those same extra biblical resources say that this went on for 19 years for Hannah. That's why it felt permanent. 19 years, year after year. Could you imagine Elkanah goes out to work, and Penina and, and Hannah are in the house, and Penina turns to her children, and her child, her oldest child, says, hey, Mom, why is Miss Hannah crying? Oh, Miss Hannah is crying today because the wonderful God of Elkanah has not given her any children. You know, and what was Penina's motive? To irritate her. So could you just see time and time again she would just turn those screws on Hannah for 19 years possibly. It felt permanent to her. 
both, I mean, at least both verses 3 and 7 say, say that the provocation went on year after year. Every time they went to Shiloh, and no doubt other times, Penina would provoke her, and it was so bad that she couldn't even eat. But you know what? Hannah's problem wasn't only this. Her problem was also theological. You're like, what, am I, what are you talking about? Look at verse 5 and 6 with me again. It says, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, we read here that the reason why Hannah was barren was because God did it. Because God was preventing it. Now, you think through this, you're like, but yeah, but did Hannah know that? Did, did Hannah really know that that's what was going on? And I think the answer to, to that is yet. Yeah. I mean, yes. Now, could uh, Samuel wrote part of First and Second Samuel? Obviously, he didn't write all of First and Second Samuel because we're, in chapter 28, it talks about his death. So obviously, he's not writing after he's dead. But does Samuel include this because he knows what we know looking back on it? So he writes, and the, and the Lord uh, had closed her womb. You know, he looks, at, looking back on it, but at the time, he didn't know, and, and, or Elkanah didn't know, and, and Hannah didn't know. Is that the case? And I don't think so. Here's why I don't think that's the case. Because we start reading in verse 10, it says, and she was deeply distressed, and she did what? She went to the Lord, and that will be number three in a minute, the prayer, but she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. And then she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look at the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son. And she says, I'll give him back to you all the days of his life. Hannah, here's why I think that she knew it was God. Because she knew to whom to turn. Because she knew who God was and she knew what ability or power God had to do, that he could do things or not do things. This family went up yearly to sacrifice, meaning, as verse 23, it's not in our text today, but verse 23 indicates that Elkanah had some sort of heart for God. I mean, he's trying to be a good family leader here. Against the backdrop of what's going on, at the end of the judges, and this was the period of the judges right before the period of the kings, at the end of the judges we read that everyone did right what was in his own eyes. So here we have a nation that's completely given over to idolatry, a nation that's completely anti-God almost. They've turned their backs on God, and yet here we find one person, at least, who year by year is headed back up to where the tabernacle is in Shiloh. It's been there for a while, and he's sacrificing. We have a man who's at least trying to continue to lead his family in a, in a, in a right way. And so we can safely assume then because of their connection and their apparent heart for God, that what? That, that Hannah knew all about Sarah. And Hannah knew all about Rachel. She knew the stories of both of those ladies, how that they were barren. But not only did she know the story about Sarah and Abraham, but she also knew what God did in both of those situations. She had to know that. And so here you have Hannah, who, knowing what she knows about God, she's like, God, what's wrong with me? Why will you not give me kids like you did Sarah? And Rachel. Rachel had Bilha. Bilha? Was that her name? Bilda? Bilda? And that's, that's Hannah's theological problem. 
She knew what God could do, but wasn't doing. And that might be some of our times. We have those, that causes pain for us too. Like, God, we know you can do that. For Deanna and I, it was like, God, we know, we know what you did with Sarah. We know what you did with Hannah. Our first son, Bryce, you all know him as Bryce. Bryce is actually his middle name. His first name is Samuel. Samuel Bryce, and the reason is, is because of this text. God did finally give us a son. He gave us three of them. So what did Hannah do with this horrific problem? How did she handle it? How do we handle our problems? This is what she did. She took this burden that she was bearing. She took her heart being torn out of her, and she went to the Lord in prayer. She went to God. Number three, prayer. This prayer does teach us a lot about Hannah. It teaches us that, first of all, she knew God is sovereign. I already mentioned that she knew God was the one who closed her womb, but she also knew who could open it. And so she pleads with, in prayer with God in verse 11. She turns to him, and she says, I, I, and she makes this vow. She's begging God, and then she says, it says in verse 12, as she continued to pray. I believe this is referencing those, if it's 19 years, those 19 years and countless times and days between those days. Those days they went up to Shiloh, time after time, Hannah went to God in prayer. She was a lady who went to God in prayer. Hannah, faced with her problems, turned to the sovereign one. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, said this. He says, when you go through a trial in life, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. She knew that God was all-powerful, that God was in control, and that God could do what he wanted to do for his glory. And she just pleaded the sovereignty of God all the time. She rested her head on the only one that could help her. Where do you rest your head? She also knew um, what the solution wasn't. She knew the solution wasn't time. You know, we, we say that cliche phrase, don't we? We say, well, time heals all wounds. You ever said that before? Ever th- heard that before at least? Time heals all, everything. Time heals all wounds. This common phrase is really meant for, to comfort the aggrieved person by giving them hope and that like somehow the mere passage of time will rid them of their pain, pain and restore their well-being. That's what that means. Hannah, she had waited for many years. Hannah was still without a child though. Time wasn't helping her. Time wasn't the solution. Time actually, if we think about it, time can actually make things worse, providing a fertile soil to allow troubles or pains to do what? To turn to bitterness. Some of you can relate. You say, hey, I've been going through this forever. Maybe a physical thing, maybe a relational thing, maybe a financial thing and all this stuff. And you're like, God, you've appealed to God who is the sovereign one. You've gone to God in prayer and you're like, I, I, I just, how much longer? You see, time isn't always the answer. God can use time. God does use time, but time is not where we find the answer. The solution also wasn't Elkanah. In a broad sense, the solution wasn't other people. Elkanah was not perfect, but he did love Hannah. He did care for her both physically and spiritually. He he was careful to take his family to worship and sacrifice as they should. And then I mentioned that verse uh, 1, chapter 1, verse 23 earlier. Actually, let um, let me start reading in verse 22. 
It says, but Hannah did not go up. This was after she had uh, conceived. Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him up so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her this, do what you seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. Now, obviously, we know, and if you don't, Hannah does get this child named Samuel, a son. And Elkanah, in verse 23, when she says, look, this is what we're going to do with our son. We're going to loan him. We're going to, we're just, he's just loaned to us. We're going to give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. He's going to go, you know what Elkanah could have done by law? He could have looked at her and said, sorry, honey. uh, Samuel is going to be the head of my household. And so he's going to be the one that takes care of everything that's in my, he's going to take care of our estate. He had every right to do that. But what does, what does Elkanah do? Elkanah says, yeah, I agree with you. I do believe that's what God wants for this son. The intent here is really to, to uh, he, he goes, he loved her deeply. Verse 5 says that, that he gave to Hannah a, du- a double portion. The intent here with a double portion is to communicate the special love he had for her. Um, he, he tries to express it. He says to him, she, he says to her, am I not more than 10 sons? Which shows he doesn't really get it. But he tries. But he can't help her. He can't give her the son. He's tried to give her the son. He's tried to give her children. The solution wasn't Elkanah. The solution is not always in people. God can use people. The solution wasn't in Eli either. Eli wasn't the answer. We read in verse, back to verse 12, and it says in verse 12, and she continued praying before the Lord, and Eli, as he was watching her, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, though, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, and she said, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. You see, the one who was supposed to be the spiritually in tune with everything that was going on thought she was drunk. There are some other indications that we'll address in the future concerning Eli, but they're really, these different indications are that he didn't really have a devoted heart for God. You see, Eli wasn't the answer either. The moral of the story is, despite all the moving parts, despite all the people and the circumstances and the problems, personal as deep as it ran, all of the issues with barrenness, she took her pain, she took her hurt, her heart and her mind to God because she knew that's where the answer was. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt this kind of pain? It doesn't have to be pain of barrenness. It can be a pain of all sorts of different stuff. We as humans are very complex humans. We all feel things differently. We have the pains of financial pains. We have the pains of relationships. We have the pains of social issues. We have psychological pains, things that haunt us from our past. We have pains that are spiritual, but all sorts of different things. We're very complex beings, and we can feel things very, very deeply. And Hannah knew where to go. And so in closing, what I really want to do this morning is I want to, I want to encourage us 
and I want us to see some practical applications, one of which is that God can use aggravation in your life, pain, distress, and hurt. God can use aggravation in your life to bring about good. As a matter of fact, through the death of someone came life. Polygamy and Panina were constant thorns in the side of Hannah. But those were thorns that did what? They drove her to prayer. They drove her to God. You remember the story of Joseph? Joseph went through a lot of junk in his life too, didn't he? And at the end of, the, at end of his life, or towards the end of the stories, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, you know what Joseph says? He says, you know what? God, um, God meant... You think God meant all of this stuff for bad in my life, like God had, but God meant this for good. Friends, the aggravation, the pain, the hurt in your life, God knows. And he allowed, think of the life of Job. Think of Romans 8, 28. All things are going to work together for those that love God. What's that purpose? To be called to be more like his son. There was a song in that was released in 2011 by uh, a lady named Laura Story. When the name of the song was called Blessings. I think I've referenced it before. And if I understand correctly, Laura wrote this song because she was going through a pain in her life. And it wasn't really even her pain. It was, it was um, pain because her husband was very debilitated in some sort of sickness or something. I don't know what, what's up today with that. But the opening of that, the first verse and chorus of that song goes like this. We pray for blessings. And we pray for peace comfort for family and protection while we sleep. We pray for healing. We pray for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need. And yet, love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings came through raindrops? And what if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life or your mercy are your mercies in disguise? And see, God wouldn't change it a hundred times, million times over for Hannah. He would have allowed her to go through those difficulties, those aggravations. Why? Because it drove her to God. The second thing is that God, we learn from this text, is that God uses the weak or the ordinary, like Elkanah and Hannah. He uses people like that. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty extra ordinary. And I say it like that intentionally. I'm ordinary, very ordinary. Maybe you feel like that. None of us in here is the king of any castle. None of us in here is the CEO of you know, whatever, it's Fortune 500 company. I like what Ralph Davis says in his commentary on this passage. He says, Hannah, therefore, shares in the fellowship of barrenness. And it is frequently in this type of fellowship that new chapters in Yahweh's history begin with his people. They begin with nothing. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity to off, to, is often the prop he delights to use for the next 
account or next act. This matter goes well beyond the particular situations of biblically barren women here. We are facing one of the principles of of God's modus operandi. When his people are without strength, when his people are without resources and without hope and without human gimmicks, then what does he do? He stretches forth his hand from heaven and he works. God can use the ordinary. God can use the weakness. God can use the pain and the hurt for his glory. And that's what he does because from Hannah comes Samuel. And Samuel is going to be the conduit that does what? That helps to change a nation. A nation who had what? Turned their backs on God. God uses the ordinary. Remember in our study in 1 Corinthians, at the very beginning, it says that God uses the foolish and the weak things of this earth to do what? To confound the wise. God uses the foolish. 2 Corinthians 12, it says when we're weak and we're dependent upon God, that's when we are our strongest. God uses the weak and the ordinary. Third thing that I application encourages us with this morning. For the believer, there is a welcome and there is a freedom to bring your burdens to God. Verse 10 says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. You know, we get to go to God with our, with our burdens. I'll never forget this. I was talking with, um, I came to faith as a sophomore in high school, junior, sophomore in high school, junior in high school, somewhere around there. Uh, junior in high school, and um, I remember one of the, the fellows that, uh, it was the pastor, that just happened to be the pastor of the church that was investing in me, and we were having a conversation, and um, I always thought prayer, you had to say, and I, I mentioned this, I think, last week or the week before, I, I always thought prayer was like, you had to talk like Shakespeare to God. Thou, artist, goddess, my favoriteest goddess, and, you know, and, and so, and I remember talking with, a, or praying with a couple other guys, and, and some of the ways that they, you know, would go boldly before the throne, and we plead, da, 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 you know, and this stuff, and, and I was like, man, those guys, and, but it was, it was always very prim and proper, and it was always very Shakespearean, right? And so I, you know, I just thought, like, okay, and we could pray about our problems, but this, this totally changed my life and rocked my world. So I was talking with with the pastor, and he and we were talking about prayer, and he said, "Yeah, you know, just be raw and go to God with your with your problems." And I was like, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, I used to sometimes go over and take my car and I go down to the park there by the there was a um, there was a bridge that go over through the little town where one really little town, Burlington, Vermont. There was a river, and he goes, I would go down there and I would just park there and I'd see the river, and then I would have shouting matches with God." I was like, "You you what did you do?" He was like, yeah. He goes, me and God just had to have seven conversations sometimes, and then sometimes I'm just not so happy with him. And I'm kind of cocking my head like, He's, this is a trick or something. And he looked at me and he said, no, Matt. He goes, God's real. So treat him like he's real. And he said, I'm not trying to encourage you to be disrespectful, but you have real pains and you have real problems. You go to God and you just say, God, you throw your hands up. And he goes, I throw my hands up in the car and I just say, God, I don't know what you're doing. God, I don't know why you're doing this. God, I don't understand what you're doing. God, I don't think you know what you're doing. God, I don't think you're listening to me. God, he goes, and we just have really heart-to-heart conversations. And that totally changed my view. 
I didn't, he wasn't encouraging me to be disrespectful or to be profane. With, he, he encouraged me to be real with God, like Hannah was being real with God. And sometimes it, you, you just go to God and you say, God, I don't get it. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why. I need to do, God, I don't know why my parents are divorced. What did I do wrong? Why do they have to do this to me, God? Who do you think you are to make this pain in my life? Who do you think you are, God? And God in his grace and his kindness, and it just, eventually I got it. It took some time. My point is here, for the, for the believer, there is a welcome and a freedom to bring your burdens to God. Don't keep them bottled up. Talk to God about your burdens, no matter what it may be. Beg God to help you see and to understand. Ask God to help you through these times. That's what Hannah did. It was so bad for her, she couldn't even eat. You ever been there? How do you respond? There's a welcome and a freedom to bring your burdens to God. I encourage you. God's real, so treat him like that. And you know what? First Peter says to cast yourself upon him. And you know what? It's possible because Jesus made, us, made it a way for us to have an audience with God. Last encouragement this morning that I want to give you is that there are situations and there are stories like these that we experience in life that make us long for the day when our faith will be sight, when we'll see Jesus face to face. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the historic redemptive promises that are recorded here, because Jesus is going to come someday through the line of David, because Jesus is who this story ultimately is pointing to, then you know what? We know that God's going to be faithful to that promise too, that Jesus is going to come and he's going to return for his own someday, and your faith will be sight. You might feel like Hannah and that the pain is permanent, but it's not. It's not permanent. You'll be with Jesus someday. You're going to get to join all of those brothers and sisters that have gone before you, family members, loved ones that are believers, and you're going to get to be with them, and you're going to, your faith is going to be made sight. And I hope you look forward to that day. Your pain's not permanent. You know what? You might pray, and it might turn out like Hannah. My wife and I, we prayed a lot. As a matter of fact, we both went and we both got medically uh, checked out, and I'll never forget the day I was driving to go uh, see my sister and my mom, and they were visiting, they were, they were down in Martinsville, Virginia, visiting, and I was over on the east, you know, coast, and so I just, it was just a straight drive over to Martinsville, four, four hour, five hour drive, something like that, and I said, yeah, they're, they're like, hey, we're going to be down there for the day, can, can we see you? And I was like, yeah, absolutely, you come this far, I'll meet you there, and so I did, and I, on the way back, the, my cell phone rang, and it was uh, it was the lady um, calling from the doctor's office, and she said, "Hey, Matt, just this is so and so, and I just want to uh, give." She wasn't a doctor. She said, "I want to give you the report, and I just want to let you know, based on um, the report, that you're never going to have kids. You're physically not able to have kids." And then she said, "If you do," by some miracle have kids, your kids will be deformed. So here I'm trying to drive home. 
and my eyes are like Niagara Falls. <laughs> and I'm driving home, and I wasn't paying attention, and I drive two hours in the opposite direction I'm supposed to drive. And it's getting dark out, and Deanna calls me and says, hey, where are you? I'm like, uh, I've been driving for a couple hours. I should be there two more. So I punch in the GPS, whatever. And, I, and this was before your phone was a GPS. This was like the Garmin Nuvi, you know, uh, you know, up on the dash. I didn't wasn't using it because it was Route 58 straight home, and I knew how to, to do that. And um, I look at it, and it was like I was going to get home at like 2 in the morning. I was like, what in the world? I was so distraught that I had, that I, I mean, the, it was pouring down my face. I couldn't hardly even see, and I was, went, it just was unbearable. You'll never have kids, and if you do, they'll be deformed. Can you imagine what's going through my head? My head? If I can't, and if I do, why would I want to do that to a kid? Long story short, she spoke out of turn, and she shouldn't have said what she said. And we were able to, God was able to use a doctor in my life, and uh, through a couple courses of antibiotics, we have three boys. It wasn't the antibiotics that did it. It was God. God chose to answer our prayer by giving us children. But we were very and acutely aware that God might have chosen to answer our prayer like he did Paul's thorn in the flesh. I don't know what God's will is for you and whatever pain you're going through in life, but I do know this. I know that time and people... God can use those and should use those for your, and will use those for good, but they're not the ultimate solution. God is. And I know that how deep the hurts and the pains can be in life. Go to God in prayer and talk to him about it. Raw. Just be raw with him. And I think if you do that, even if it's not, if you're, if you're seeking hard after God, if, you're, if your heart's open and you're, then I think even if it's not what you want, I think the Lord will sustain you and will help you through whatever the difficulty is. Hannah had pain. You're going to have pain, and I hope, you treat, I hope that you deal with it biblically. Let's pray this morning. God, thank